What's Wrong with Universities? Today on The Curious Task, my guest is Mark Mercer. Welcome to The Curious Task, where we talk about philosophy, politics, and economics from a classical liberal perspective. Mark Mercer is professor of philosophy at St. Mary's University and until recently served as the president of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Last spring, as he was stepping down from that position, he gave an interview to C2C Journal, which is going to serve as the starting point for our conversation today. So, Mark, we'd like to jump into a question and see where the answers lead us. What's wrong with universities? What's wrong with universities? Universities are maybe not abandoning their academic mission, but their academic mission is less and less important to them. Uh, and as other um, missions, other things that they want to do come into prominence, then uh, their commitment to academic values uh, has declined. Uh, so the decline in uh, concern for the academic mission and the consequent uh, devaluing of academic values. Great. I think this is a thing that we sometimes hear a lot, people saying, oh, well, things today aren't like they were in, in my days. Um, is this something that, you know, we always sort of idealize the past or is, is this something different that's going on? Because certainly I started university in 1998 and even at that point, people would say, well, you know, they're not what they used to be. Well, uh, things go up and down. I don't know that, um, you know, it, it, there, were, there was ever a golden age. Actually, I think there never was a golden age. Uh, but uh, things get better and things get worse. And I think right now uh, we're uh, in, the, uh, in, in the trough rather than the, uh, than the peak. Um, different institutions, um, uh, different situations, but I think uh, there's a general trend toward making universities uh, something other than uh, places of academic engagement uh, with, the, uh, with the matters at hand. Um, maybe in the 60s and 70s, uh, that might have been a high point. Even there, uh, even then there were uh, uh, troubles and problems. Um, so uh, I don't think there's ever been a, a, a good old days. Um, it's just a matter of um, what overall is happening. Uh, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Great. Right. I think I think that's a, a useful comment. Maybe one thing we can sort of dig into is what you consider the purpose of a university to be, because I think this is something that a lot of people have different thoughts on and may not even be aware that we have these different thoughts on the purpose of a university. Well, that's true. And I, I think my uh, my ideas, um, I think uh, they're not idios idiosyncratic, but I'm, not in, I'm certainly not in the majority, maybe not even among those people who uh, uh, value academic freedom and freedom of expression on campus. I think one of the uh, one of the ideas is that um, universities uh, that the purpose of a university is is one to uh, create and disseminate uh, knowledge and information. Um, I'm not I'm not convinced that's right. Um, I think that uh, what what I take universities to be, or at least what I what I hope a university would be, is a place where people who value their ability to think for themselves and who value their ability to value for themselves come together in order to think hard about things that matter to them. Uh, and I include professors and students uh, in that. Uh, students are uh, maybe aspiring uh, intellectuals if the uh, 
professors are the intellectuals. Well, we're all just aspiring intellectuals. No one's actually made it. Uh, but the, uh, the the students are partners in this um, in this project. Um, um, apprentice uh, partners in the, in this project. Uh, so the, the university um, is a place where people uh, can get together to think hard about things. Thinking hard about things requires that you uh, make your views known and that you offer them for criticism, that you listen to criticism, accept uh, criticism, and, 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 and criticize others. Now, the, um, uh, one of the difficulties here is that people don't like that. They don't like hearing criticism. They don't like being criticized. You know, no, no one does. Um, and one of the tasks of university professors in acclimatizing uh, students is to uh, get them used to that and to um, show them um, how valuable it can be to take matters that really matter to you, you know, aspects of your identity and hold them out at arm's length so that others can see them and allow others to, uh, to talk about them as, as they will. Uh, so, so for me, I think um, uh, universities serve social functions, but they serve their social functions best when they just look after their uh, their internal um, uh, their internal uh, relations, and that is uh, allowing people to think hard about uh, matters that are of interest to them. There's two common views of universities that I've heard uh, what the what it is that they're accomplishing. One side is that they are building a human capital, that people go in, they don't know a lot, they don't have a lot of skills, they come out four, five, six years later, they have more knowledge, more skills, they have increased human capital. Others, including Brian Kaplan, who's been a guest on this podcast talking mm. about the subject, thinks it is largely just a credentialing system where employers, future employers, want to have some way of knowing that, uh, that the person they're speaking to has some you know, reasonable level of intelligence, some reasonable level of conformity when they're given rules in, in the workplace, and that a university is a way to sort of certify those people for future employers. It's probably an inefficient and expensive way of doing that. Do you think your view fits in with either of those models, or is it something a bit different? Well, no, but first of all, let me mention that you left something of uh, Brian Kaplan's view out, and that is that the employer is looking for someone who can tolerate four years of, <laughs> of sitting in a classroom and behaving themselves. So, yeah, there's the conformity, but then there's also just the endurance uh, that uh, uh, employers are looking for. Um, uh, so, no, uh, my, my view is neither of those. Uh, I, uh, uh, I think that uh, the... Uh, I, I want to distinguish between the, the reasons people have who are in the university for being in a university and the reasons other people, people outside the university might have for supporting such an institution. So I think um, inside the institution, it's just the, the, um, uh, the love of engagement with uh, intellectual, uh, intellectually difficult problems. Um, that's why uh, professors and students are uh, keen to be, uh, to, to be in this institution because uh, it allows them to do that. But I think um, the institution, uh, if an institution um, is um, working well, it's going to have um, social effects that uh, people outside, you know, people who couldn't care less about engaging with intellectual problems uh, would still want to support the institution. And um, one of these, uh, one of the reasons people outside a university might want to support it is that the universities would produce by encouraging scholars simply to engage with what interests them, uh, will produce um, trustworthy research. Research that isn't um, guided by an agenda. 
Um, and this research, uh, whether it's um, about in the physical sciences or biological sciences or, or medicine, uh, social problems, the plight of Indigenous people in Canada, for instance, anything um, can be used by people outside the university, um, socially, uh, politically, um, uh, for their own sake. So I think this is one important purpose that a university serves. I think it serves it best when it doesn't care about serving that purpose on the inside, when it just cares about um, you know, engaging with things. Uh, the second might be the human capital um, uh, uh, view, but um, I think that's a rather dry and technocratic way of putting it. Um, I think rather um, students who come from a, um, uh, a universe, an academic university, an, uh, a, a university of liberal study, are going to be able to think for themselves, and they may in fact enjoy thinking for themselves. And when they take their place in the professional managerial elite, that will be good for all of us. Um, that they're not um, going to take on ideas and views simply because they're in the air, or simply because the attractive people hold them. Um, they've been uh, for three or four years. Uh, with people who um, are engaged in disputation um, and aren't, uh, you know, and, and aren't uh, kicking each other, um, and, and, and you know, it's not a slugfest. And so they're able then, um, I think, to um, engage with um, uh, the social and political, whatever problems, the, the managerial problems that come to them um, as uh, as young professionals, as young managers. Um, in a, 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 a much better way uh, than if they uh, come um, as ideologues or with um, uh, trained into particular attitudes. Uh, the third thing I, I'd say, though, is that to the university itself produces uh, culture. It um, you know produces um, popular books that people like to read on science, on um, um, interpretation of literature, all the rest. Uh, so those are the uh, the three social goods that I think an academic university will produce and will produce better uh, than uh, other sorts of universities. Yeah. I was recently listening to a podcast where they talked a bit about this. And one of the comments was that a lot of people will say that a university is designed not to teach you so much, but to teach you to learn how to learn. And and this is an oft-repeated thing. And, and the guest pointed out, well, actually, we know a fair bit about how to learn things. And like the study habits that people do in universities, where you just stay up all night cramming and you <laughs> highlight and you do this stuff, this is actually goes against all the things that we know about, about how to learn. So maybe universities aren't doing that. But I think your comments sort of illustrate what I think is an interesting you know, tension in universities in that the professors, the administrators, and maybe even the students within university tend to have certain views on it. However, universities, at least in Canada, are very largely funded through provincial governments out, out of taxpayer yes. dollars. And I think the median taxpayer thinks of a university as a place where people are taught useful skills for the job market. So you're in a philosophy department. I imagine you've had some students over the years whose parents are not happy that their kids want to learn philosophy because they should be doing something practical where they'll be able to take that onto the job market. Do you see that sort of, I mean, not that taxpayers have direct say of how much money goes to the universities, but it seems to me that tension between the people who are providing the funding and the people performing the work can be one of the problems in a university. Well, that's right. And, and if, if universities become as they are becoming, um, many of them, especially in Canada, you know, where um, the uh, difference between university uh, A, university B, university C is often very minimal. Um, if, if universities, and, and in Canada they are en masse, uh, 
um, coming to be more vocational institutions, institutions that to take their um, their bead from um, what they believe are the needs of industry, um, what are the, the, the needs of, um, of government, um, then the university can be very easily criticized for not doing a very good job of it, right? If, if, the, if the task is to produce students with their three or four year degree, who then can get into the job market without any additional training, um, and this is not happening, uh, then um, the universities can, can, can certainly be faulted. Uh, but I don't think that's what the university should be doing. Um, I think the, um, uh, the, the, the richness of university education is uh, something other uh, than job preparation. Um, but um, if universities set themselves up to have particular social goals, uh, then they can be criticized for failing to meet those goals. Um, and, you know, um, not just um, industry and government, but many uh, criticize the universities for failing to be models of, say, diversity, equity, and inclusion that uh, other um, institutions in the, um, in the society and the country can, can follow. And because many universities are now proclaiming themselves to be places of equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, they might think, well, we'd better um, uh, uh, have more EDI initiatives in order that uh, we fulfill our role as modeling um, a progressive institution within our culture. Uh, but, you know, for, for me, that's entirely to go the wrong way, that uh, the university um, does what it does best socially when it takes care of the, um, ac its academic purposes. And its academic purposes are to um, uh, involve people in investigating uh, features of the world, interpreting literature, interpreting uh, social phenomena, uh, and, and, and the rest. I think we'll come back to some of that EDI discussion and how that is impacting modern universities later on. First, I want to ask you, do you think too many people go to university? No, I don't. I don't think too many people go to university, but I do think that, um, I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm in favor of um, the three-year degree rather than the four-year degree. I think uh, many people stay in universities who maybe uh, should have left. Um, uh, there you are living the life of the mind uh, for three years. You don't care for it anymore. It doesn't matter, but you've had a taste. You understand what it is. You've had uh, some experience. You're now in a position to say that this isn't for me, right? And, and if you uh, received a three-year general BA, um, you know, you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't think this is a, a terribly lost time. So um, I think um, um, anyone who wants to come to university would be happy to have them. But once they're there, here are the, you know, the standards. Here's what we're looking for. Here's what we're doing. Um, and if it's not for you, well, uh, fine, please leave. But I, don't, um, I, I think um, high entrance standards weed out too many people who would make a good go of it, uh, who would find it useful, and um, maybe admit people who don't find it useful. So, uh, so I don't mind that lots of people uh, come to university. I wouldn't mind that, uh, you know, uh, first year um, at a university is, is, is uh, lots of people, as long as they have uh, small enough classes that, you know, they're not overwhelmed by the, by the numbers. Uh, so you know, I don't think um, our, uh, many of the problems, some of the problems, but I don't think many of the problems uh, were created by the, um, uh, the, the, the 
relatively sudden influx of large numbers of students into higher education. Yeah, that's an interesting point about sort of people staying too long. I know in my own case, my first university degree was it was a four-year business degree, and it could have been a three-year business degree. And and probably I think the marginal value of that extra fourth year uh, was not actually that big. But I don't recall anyone ever mentioning to me that that third year was an option. It was sort of like, well, you we expect you to do the fourth year. And now in my job, I deal with a lot of students. Four years are very much the standards. It's not uncommon for people to do a fifth year on a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. You know, they missed yeah. uh, a couple classes for whatever reason, and uh, and that can drag on. And then I also see this situation where smart people who are not sure what it is that they should do, but they've got good grades, their parents and grandparents are proud of them for going to university and, and graduating, and they will sort of feel like they need to go to graduate school and pick up a, yeah. a one or two year master's degree or, or go to law school. Now, of course, if those are credentials and an important part of the path that an individual is on, those can be valuable things. But it seems to me that a lot of people do graduate degrees just because they feel like it's the thing that should be done. And it puts off the sort of uncomfortable process of going out into the, the working world for another year or two. Any thoughts on graduate school? Uh, well, what you say might be true, but I, I really don't know. Uh, I haven't, uh, uh, you know, people I've talked to tend to go to law school because they want to or, or, or to um, uh, do a master's in philosophy because they want to. But, uh, you know, uh, we, we use the term graduate school, but there are many um, subdivisions within that. Uh, there's professional school. Well, professional schools aren't often called uh, graduate schools, but uh, certainly law schools and, and uh, uh, faculties of medicine, universities uh, that have uh, medical programs. Uh, but there are also, I think, the distinction between the academic master's degree or the academic uh, postgraduate degrees and the, um, the, the more vocational, uh, the sort of study ones uh, where uh, it's, you, you want to come out being able to uh, interpret policy, things like that, because you're looking for a government position or a position in a business or, or, or industry. Um, now, those are career paths. Uh, and, um, you know, they do have some responsibility to understand what the job market is like and what the employers are, are, are looking for. And um, uh, students, uh, you know, 22, 23 years old, uh, finish their university um, degree. They want to go on to graduate school with a focus on finding a job. Um, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing that there are these, uh, uh, these options. Um, but I'm really happy. Uh, I hope uh, uh, that there are academic uh, graduate uh, programs uh, still in existence, even though they're getting smaller. Some people worry that the, um, you know, the number of PhDs being produced in academic disciplines far exceeds the number of positions available. And uh, I think that students, when they go into these programs, should know well that that's the case and it's unlikely that they'll get a job um, as, a, as a university professor. Uh, but I still think that the experience itself is rewarding enough that, um, you know, it's, if, if, if you're you know, passionate about history and you want to do some research and that research is going to take you um, a, a couple of years, well, do a Ph.D., um, even if um, you don't, even if it's unlikely that you'll get a job as a professor at the end of it, and certainly it'll put you in good stead for uh, uh, teaching careers in the uh, in, in the schools. 
Yeah, I often say to students that, uh, you know, if you can get a job as a professor, it seems to me, and I'm sort of that world of being like adjunct, uh, not, not an actual <laughs> adjunct professor, but I'm adjacent to professors. A lot of my friends are professors. I work with a lot of professors. It seems like an immensely rewarding and fulfilling career. However, because of the number of PhDs, number of people who want those jobs, they're extremely competitive. And I really want students to go in if they're considering graduate school with their eyes open about the job prospects. As you say, it's yeah. one thing to do a you know a PhD in history, knowing you're not going jo- to get a job because you have the love of the topic you're exploring. Mm-hmm. You just want students to have a, a reasonable expectation about what will happen. Yes. You have an essay uh, turned into a book that you recently published uh, in praise of dangerous universities. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about what you mean by dangerous universities? Yes, well, well, the book's a collection of essays, and so that's one of the essays uh, in it. Um, I, I'm now working on a book, a, a monograph about universities, but uh, dangerous universities. Well, of course, I'm playing on the idea of uh, university being a safe space. But by dangerous university, I do mean a university where um, central aspects of your identity are open to challenge, uh, where you know you might hear that. Um, things uh, about you, things that matter to you, uh, you might hear criticism of them, criticism of, uh, you know, your upbringing, criticism of uh, your people. Um, And uh, I think um, uh, for intellectuals, for academics, um, that's um, to be uh, be welcomed. Um, We want to uh, understand the interconnections among the different aspects of ourselves and uh, to... uh, uh, abandon those parts of ourselves that uh, don't uh, pass muster and the rest. So a dangerous university is one where um, aspects of your um, of your identity are, are exposed to others and, and will receive criticism. And this is part of what it is to be a university of disputation. And I distinguish that, the university of disputation, from uh, what is coming now, more the university of celebration. There's the idea where identities and... and um, uh, uh, feelings, emotions are to be celebrated. Uh, and the, the celebration then precludes the critical investigation, the, uh, you know, the, um, the disputation about uh, aspects of ourselves and how we fit into the world. Uh, so I wanted to, um, uh, to signal that, uh, you know, this, uh, well, I chose the, the, that, that title for, uh, the title of the essay to, to be the title of the book, um, was uh, sort of to, it was, was to indicate a, um, a rejection of the uh, culture of celebration at universities, the culture of safe spaces at universities, and advocate for something like uh, a dangerous university. I think we sometimes hear these sort of complaints or criticisms about uh, the kids these days, in uh, in mm. scare quotes, and and uh, that you know they're snowflakes and, and cannot possibly be offended. I'm a father of a couple of young kids and. One thing I sort of notice is often, and I mean, I fall into this trap too, although I try to be conscious of it, it's so easy as a parent to think that your kids are not ready for things that they actually are ready for. And I think we probably have a, a tendency to, you know, remember them when they were very small and vulnerable yeah. and couldn't possibly do anything. And then it's hard to be sure that we're, you know, have the right conception of what it is that they're ready for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are they ready to go up that uh, you know, play structure by themselves? Are they ready to come down the slide without mom or dad standing at the bottom, ready to catch them. And I sort of wonder, you know, in your experience at a university, is this sort of stuff 
driven by the students who feel that they might be threatened or uncomfortable by these dangerous ideas? Is there a level at which it is driven by parents or other people who are in those sort of you know, uh, parental fig, uh, roles? I don't think I don't think parents. I, I might be wrong about that, but I don't, I don't think parents have uh, have uh, much. Um, you know, I, I hear stories about parents coming, but I, I've I've met only I think one or two parents in my <laughs> entire thirty uh, year university career. Um, I think the, um, uh, the 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 snowflake students, the um, uh, easily offended uh, students, are a minority within students. But again, minorities can be powerful, especially when they have uh, professors and academic administrators on their sides to hear their complaints and to take their complaints seriously. Quite often, a um, student who complains about something that a, a professor said uh, should be told to go pound sand, but, you know, told to go pound sand nicely and, you know, with explanations and all the rest. Um, but um, uh, it's 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 frightening to me. And when I was president of um, of SAFs, uh, it was uh, you know it was pretty hard and sometimes emotionally draining uh, to hear uh, about um, incidents where uh, things that a professor said or did should not have attracted any administrative attention at all. Um, to have the administrator take it up is uh, you know fundamentally to violate aspects of um, of university culture, and yet there there it was. Um, even if it didn't uh, result in a disciplinary meeting or or even worse, a disciplinary hearing, uh, even if a professor is simply called into a meeting with uh, someone from some office about uh, using the phrase "boys and girls," and this actually happened, <laughs> um, and you know and nothing came of it, uh, but. Why in the world uh, would you coddle a student who uh, complains because of the expression boys and girls uh, by letting it be known that the professor is going to be talked to uh, about this? It, it, it makes no sense. Um, and so uh, many professors and many students as well um, outside this minority are um, concerned about what they say in class, even floating an idea. Uh, not even advocating it, but, you know, well, what if this were true um, can get you into trouble if one of the um, sensitive or politically engaged, whatever students is around, uh, around to hear it or sensitive, politically engaged professors. That's not, not, not just the students, but um, that's the failing. I think the, um, the lack of uh, commitment to academic values on the part of academic administrators and other administrators within the university puts all of us at risk, puts the academic project at risk. It makes people afraid to say certain things, to in uh, investigate certain topics, um, to say certain things in certain ways. Um, and so you're wondering, and um, that's not good for the discussion. If you're concerned, uh, you, you know, you have something that you think were you to say it, it would move the discussion ahead, and yet you don't say it uh, because you're afraid that someone might, you know, uh, react in a way that, uh, that that gets you into trouble, um, you know, and, and who, who needs to be in trouble. And I think this is um, this phenomenon is widespread within universities today, and um, I wouldn't blame the students. The students are there to. Um, be initiated into the strange tribe of academics. Uh, I think the academic administrators and uh, uh, many of my fellow professors are the ones who are to blame for this. 
I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, I will sometimes make this re referring to a talk that we've had given by a philosophy professor at some of our student seminars, where he asked the students who thinks that bestiality is wrong. And of course, all hands in the room go up. Mm -hmm. And then he starts asking them why they think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And it quite rapidly becomes apparent that these students do not have like real solid foundational answers for uh -huh. why this is wrong. You know, they'll immediately jump to a consent issue. And some of them are vegetarians or vegans for ethical issues. And then, you know, maybe they've demonstrated they respect the consent of animals. But for those of us who eat meat, consent doesn't seem to be this sort of like really <laughs> solid objection. Some students, unfortunately, sometimes take away the point of that talk to be an argument that, you know, bestiality is not wrong. But mm -hmm. the point is we have these thoughts of things that are wrong or right, whatever, you know, could be either side of the coin. Um, mm -hmm. And if we haven't thought about opposing points of view, then we are on very weak footing and we haven't really developed an understanding of what our own position is curious if you've had any you know, exercises or experiences or things you've been able to do with students that have been effective in sort of, um, you know, making this point, helping them understand, helping them perhaps be comfortable entertaining ideas that they might be uncomfortable with, they might think are wrong, but showing them that sort of trying to understand those ideas is part of the process of really understanding and figuring out where it is that you stand. Yeah, well, it certainly is. And, and this is one of the, uh, the central points that J.S. Mill uh, is famous for making, that you don't know your own side of the case unless you know very well the other side of the case. Uh, and um, I, um, I don't often talk to my students about what I'm trying to do or what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, I have had times outside of class when we're talking about pedagogical issues, but I don't want to do that inside class because I think it's... Um, presumptuous, you know, like you need, uh, like you, you, you don't know what it is we're doing here. So I try to uh, do it by example. Um, so we'll bring up a, a, a topic for discussion and I'll write on the board um, views from different angles uh, and, you know, th then ask to do it. Um, but I won't, I, I won't say, well, we won't understand our own view unless we understand the, the opposing view. But let's just try to understand the opposing view as part of what we're doing um, in, in this classroom, as part of what we're doing as, uh, as uh, uh, aspiring philosophers trying to, uh, uh, to think our way through the world. Um, I, one, one case I remember was uh, when, I, when I was asking, uh, well, what are, some, uh, uh, what are some arguments in favor of the closet? Right, the closet as a social institution to deal with homosexuality, um, as though homosexuality needs to be dealt with. But in some in some contexts, uh, you know, the, the 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 closet in some cultures, I think, was a reasonably humane way of um, accommodating different sexualities. Uh, when there was a, um, a uh, you know, a, not a consensus view by any means, but a, um, you know, a large, powerful block uh, toward um, you know strict uh, masculine, feminine, um, heterosexual uh, roles. Uh, and uh, there were some students who were really quite shocked. Uh, like, you know, why should we? You know, the closet, um, this is a, a, a terrible social institution that kept people away from, um, you know, realities about themselves. And it, um, uh, you know, maybe protected people who didn't need protection. Uh, and, you know, it's so much better that we're without it. But no, there's the question, um, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, take a society that um, uh, 
is anti-homosexual generally, but doesn't have an institution like the closet and compare it to one that, uh, that, that, that does. Um, and, um, uh, I, I don't think that, um, you know, sexual liberation in our cultures would have uh, come about had it not been for these intermediary, uh, institutions. Uh, so that was, uh, that was one example where, um, you know, it, it, it didn't provoke the sort of dispassionate engagement uh, among all the students that I hoped it would, uh, that uh, some uh, sort of refused uh, the, um, uh, the request. Uh, but um, there have been um, uh, others um, talking about abortion, for instance, euthanasia, um, you know, uh, assigning uh, groups of, you know, putting students into groups and then assigning them aside rather than allowing them to choose. Now, I know that in some universities, and again, I think this is the um, uh, lack of commitment to academic values on the part of academic administrators, um, that sort of exercise is now, uh, um, uh, if not banned, at least heavily frowned upon. Um, an instructor or professor can get into a little bit of trouble uh, by uh, having as a requirement that the student argue this position though it's not the uh, you know, a, a position that the student wants. Um, and that's really much uh, too bad, uh, you know, because one way of getting students to think on both sides of the issue is just to tell them, you know, for uh, five points uh, in this course, uh, develop an argument um, in favor of the closet as a social institution, right? Um, and if we can't do that, uh, then, you know, the possibility of seeing the other sides um, is, uh, is, uh, is lowered. It's not as likely that our students are going to be um, as informed, as thoughtful, as careful as they could be otherwise. Absolutely. I think that ability to sort of hold a position or think of a position that you don't hold, present what would be the best arguments for them, and of course, this is a very million point, uh, really helps you in being able to rebut that and, and figuring out where it is that you stand. And sometimes in the process of doing this, I think we figure out that we actually don't stand where it is that we thought we stood on that yeah. issue. This has been a great conversation so far. I want to move us over to a little bit about the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship and your time there. Before we do that, this is a great time to take our break. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes uh, with that conversation. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Yakov Mihailovich, Peter Jaworski, and Ben Hobbs. Remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mark Mercer today, but what's wrong with universities? In the first half of our conversation, we talked about the situations on modern university campuses, the institutions, some of the problems and potential solutions there. Now I want to turn our conversation to an organization that uh, that Mark was the president of for a number of years, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. And before we actually get into that institution itself, Mark, in the uh, the interview with C2C, you talk about an experience you had standing in front of a colleague's door that got you sort of interested and aware in these issues about <laughs> academic freedom. Can you tell us that story? Well, that's right. That was uh, Peter March back in, uh, I forget now, was it 2003, 2004? Um, at any rate, you probably remember the Jylan Post uh, posting cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. 
Um, indeed, if you know the cartoons, you realize that um, I think there were, what, 12 of them, uh, but only maybe eight or nine were actually of the prophet Muhammad. Uh, one of them was of a kid named Muhammad. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, Peter had, uh, th- these cartoons provoked um, outrage among uh, some uh, Muslims and some Muslim uh, uh, communities uh, and um, uh, uh, riots. And, uh, um, but any, uh, Peter decided that he was going to put the uh, uh, cartoons on his office door. Uh, the uh, cartoons weren't being reprinted by newspapers and the rest. And some of them said, um, and, um, you know, maybe not truthfully, that they weren't reprinting them uh, because of the fear of violence. Uh, I think many of them weren't reprinting them out of uh, uh, solicitude for the feelings of, uh, of, uh, of, of some people. So uh, Peter posted the cartoons on his office door. Professors post all sorts of things on their office doors, um, cartoons, political uh, uh, literature, uh, whatever. Um, and uh, Peter was, um, uh, some students complained and Peter was brought before a, uh, 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 a three-person panel uh, to uh, determine whether he had uh, violated some regulation at, at St. Mary's. Um, this was, um, uh, I, I thought this was just crazy. Uh, now, if the Cartoons were ordered down for reasons of safety. That might be one thing, um, though there were reports, indications at the time uh, that um, uh, there was no safety uh, safety issue, that uh, uh, Muslims and others in Canada were not reacting violently uh, uh, to, to the cartoons. Uh, there was an article in the Globe and Mail explaining this. But, um, you know, let's suppose that the, uh, the um, administrators at St. Mary's had worries that someone's going to bust down the door or whatever. Um, in that case, they might uh, uh, order them down from the door, have them posted somewhere else on campus, you know, side or something, or, or just say, sorry, you know, we, we can't have them. But they would, uh, in ordering them down, um, say this is regrettable. Um, this uh, has to be done for the sake of something else. But yes, it is uh, to infringe on the academic freedom of one of our, our professors. But no, they didn't. Uh, they uh, uh, took them down and most of their um, rhetoric was not about uh, the safety issue at all, but about how uh, this was offensive to our multicultural values or, or, or whatever. And uh, uh, more than that, uh, Peter was uh, uh, brought to, uh, to, to, this, uh, to this panel. The um, panel was going to find that he had not violated any rule. And um, once the students who had complained got wind of this, um, and I think this is horrible, once the students who uh, complained got wind of this, they dropped the complaint. They dropped the complaint rather than have the complaint uh, be revealed to be without merit. Uh, and, uh, uh, the pre- uh, and a precedent set in favor of uh, freedom of expression on campus. Um, at any rate, uh, the only um, academic group that came out in support of Peter's right to post on his office door what he wants was the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. And I didn't know of this, uh, this group before, um, and so I was uh, quite impressed. I um, um, uh, had some talks with the, uh, the president at the time, Clive Seligman, and um, Clive was editing their newsletter, and um, I started writing uh, for the newsletter, and Clive was a terrific editor and published a lot of my uh, 
my stuff. So I, um, I, I joined, I joined fairly uh, quickly and then uh, uh, became a board member. And then a few years after I became, uh, I became president. But, um, you know, I, uh, I had been concerned about academic freedom, freedom of expression on campus, declining academic standards, <laughs> um, all of the, uh, the things that uh, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship is interested in for a long time, uh, but not, um, uh, you know, not as seriously uh, as, I, as I was. Uh, so I was aware of the Philip, uh, the Philip Rushton case. I was a graduate student at the time um, and um, uh, other cases um, uh, between then and, uh, and Peter. Uh, but it was uh, with, uh, with Peter's case that I um, actually got involved uh, rather than, you know, just sighed at how stupid <laughs> things were. Um, yes, and so in uh, May, after eight years as president, I uh, stepped down, and Robert Thomas is now the uh, the president of uh, SAFS. Great. So you mentioned you were president for eight years and a board yeah. member before that. What, what was some of the work that SAFS uh, did, and I presume continues to do, uh, in uh, out of concern for academic freedom in this country? Well, when a, um, a, a case comes to us that uh, uh, where uh, academic values, where we believe that academic values have been violated or put at risk by you know, policies or incidents, uh, we'll write letters to the, uh, to the university and to the people uh, um, there. Now, most stuff happens below our radar, and um, a lot of, quite often, people will ask us not to send letters, people who are involved in things because um, they don't want the, uh, the publicity uh, or they think that if uh, uh, people come um, on their side, it will make them worse for it, that their university will, uh, will, will treat them even worse. So uh, there's much happening that uh, we weren't uh, able to respond to either because we didn't know about it or because we were asked not to. Uh, but many uh, cases where uh, professors had said things or written things that um, uh, someone had taken objection to and somehow managed to attract administrative attention. And again, I, you know, th these were often cases where no administrator uh, should have uh, uh, should have cared uh, should have uh, uh, the administrator should have been talking to the complainants to the students explaining academic values explaining what's ha what's happening at a university rather than carrying uh, the uh, the complaint uh, uh, to the professor um, there were um, you know uh, many cases over the years that um, uh, came to us uh, we had um, uh, Kathleen Lowry I think you might uh, be aware of uh, her case uh, she's an anthropology professor at uh, University of Edmonton uh, the University in Edmonton which is the University of Alberta right yeah uh, I get Calgary and Alberta confused sometimes but yes the University of Alberta is in, in Edmonton uh, she had a position um, uh, a quasi-administrative position in her uh, department as a, uh, uh, a student advisor. Um, and because her views on women-only spaces and things like that uh, uh, were known, uh, some students complained that they didn't want to, they didn't feel comfortable uh, with her. And so uh, she was removed from that role. Uh, now, um, this wasn't uh, you know this was a um, a um, an administ a quasi administrative position, but nonetheless this uh, was a very bad uh, form by her department and then by her university. I think um, her union was uh, was grieving it. That's good. Uh, there's also the case of Thomas uh, Hudlicky, who you, you you might not have heard of at, at Brock University. He was a chemist and. Uh, 
she wrote uh, an editorial, not a, a paper in chemistry, but an editorial uh, where he said that um, his field of chemistry was uh, suffering because students weren't being uh, trained properly, weren't being educated properly. Also, he uh, uh, came out against uh, um, preferential and restricted hiring, and he said that um, uh, some of the research done in China wasn't trustworthy. And for these reasons, that, you know, that because of this article, um, the uh, journal um, uh, retracted uh, the article. Uh, some editors were fired. And, uh, uh, you know, worse, his university attacked him. Um, and, you know, he was uh, well within his rights to say what he said. This is part of his job. It should not have come uh, to the attention of the, uh, the administrators. Um, so that, you know, that was um, a, a flagrant case. There's the Francis Whittleson case right now as well, uh, where these are flagrant violations of uh, academic freedom or of the, um, um, the principle that uh, the university as an institution should not be taking a stand on, um, a ma on a controversial matter. Why? So that the professors and the students don't think that there's a party line uh, so that they feel free to investigate it as they will. Uh, so yes, over over my my eight years, and then the years before that, uh, we uh, uh, we wrote about a lot of things. <laughs> great, great. I think that's useful. And those are names that I've heard. I follow SAFs on some of the social media, mm. and I can get some emails. But it's nice to to know about some of those cases. We've mentioned academic freedom, I think, a few times in the mm. course of our conversation. For professors and maybe some of the students who are yes. listening, they'll be familiar with that term. For a lot of people outside the university, maybe it's something they've heard, but they're not quite sure what it is, what its limits are, what its purpose is. Can you tell mm -hmm. a little bit about the idea of academic freedom? Good. Yeah, I think we have to start with its purpose um, because, you know, it sounds like academic freedom, like there's a thing, right? And uh, well, there isn't. There's just this question, how free should professors be? Uh, free in teaching, free in research, free in uh, uh, public discussion and, and the rest. Uh, so uh, I, I think that uh, professors should be um, um, as as free as the law allows, and then I, again, I think the law should be freer than it is, um, uh, that um, the, the purpose of academic freedom is uh, to make um, conversation, discussion, uh, research as, as open and public as it, can, as it could be. Uh, if you're worried about um, sanction from your institution, um, by pursuing some line of inquiry or by saying something, then um, that line of inquiry isn't going to be pursued. Um, you're not going to be um, in a position to uh, uh, come up with uh, results and talk to people uh, about it. Um, we want, we need the institutional protection so that um, the only the only pressures on the academic, on the professor or the student, are the pressures of evidence and argument. If we allow the pressures of sanction to get in uh, to get into this, then we're deforming uh, the, uh, the the research task and the teaching task and the learning, uh, the, the ability of, uh, of of people to learn. Um, sometimes I put it uh, this way: um, What would you rather? Uh, would Would you rather? 
believe falsely and value unsoundly, but for your own reasons, or believe truly and value soundly, but as a result of social pressure. Now, if you'd rather, if, if what matters to you is the true beliefs and the sound values, and that might matter to you uh, for people in your community, right? You don't want people discriminating against others on the basis of race, and maybe you don't care why they're not discriminated on the basis of race. Maybe it's because of social pressures and, and, and all the rest, but at least they're not doing it. Uh, but there you are together in a community of intellectuals. Uh, you don't want people um, believing things, valuing things, because this is the done thing, because this is how others do it, or if I don't do it, I'm, I'm liable to some pressure. So academic freedom, uh, the, the purpose of academic freedom is to free the professors from the pressures on their, uh, on their beliefs and on their values that come from um, uh, social needs or, or political directives or um, individual fears or individual preferences uh, so that when they've made up their mind, they're making up their minds on their own value, on their uh, uh, through their own thoughts and through their own values, uh, rather than uh, values or thoughts imposed upon them, right? So this, I think, is the purpose of academic freedom. Uh, but again, university is an institution. Things got to get written down. Um, you know, we need uh, the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the academic calendar. We need the, uh, the, the, the contracts. And so um, academic freedom then becomes um, um, an institution, well, should be an institutionalized thing in the collective agreements between the professors and the university, uh, that the university is not going to penalize professors in any way uh, for the content of their research, for where they disseminate their research, um, for their uh, speaking their opinions in public, um, that uh, they have the uh, freedom of expression rights that Canadians have against the government, uh, they also have them against the university administration, um, that they may um, experiment as uh, teachers uh, with um, novel uh, teaching techniques, that they you know, set their own exams, um, that uh, the teaching materials that they use are up to them, right? So this is what um, uh, rich, robust academic freedom would look like. But, um, well, it's an institution, and so people with power in an institution like to exercise that power, or they might have purposes that are different than the academic purpose. I think this is coming uh, more and more to be the case. Uh, and so they'll want to whittle away, um, chip away at, academic, uh, at, at the protections of academic freedom, uh, so to streamline what's happening in the university and maybe to guide it in the directions they want it to go. I'm going to maybe push back on something you said there, but maybe it's just an area of getting a little more specific. You said that academics should be as free as the law allows. Now, it comes to legal free speech, I'm pretty much an absolutist. You know, outside of yeah. untruths that uh, maybe result in some sort of tangible harm, I think people should be free, legally free to say all sorts of offensive and untrue things. However, I would draw a slightly narrower conception of my understanding of academic freedom. So I think I should Ooh. absolutely have the political freedom to say the world is flat. If right. I'm a geography professor, I'm not sure that I would extend that freedom to teaching the world is flat. And if I was a uh, professor of chemistry or, uh, or political science to spend my lectures when I should be talking about other things, 
talking about my flat earth theory. Would you take academic freedom so far as to really just whatever people want to say? Or are there some limits that are a bit narrower than what we think of as free speech in a liberal society? Well, uh, whatever uh, the professor and the students want to say. Um, now, uh, you know, teaching flat earth theory. I don't, I'm not sure I know what that means. Uh, discussing flat earth theory in your class, having questions on the exam about flat earth theory, um, that might be entirely uh, appropriate. Um, uh, if someone, uh, if a geography professor thinks that there's merit to discussing um, flat earth theory, maybe this person actually endorses it. Maybe he's a flat earther. Um, that's fine. Um, now, the professors are to criticize each other, right? And, and um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the person who holds false views, well, uh, write about this. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the demise of the campus newspaper, I think, has been a, a, a terrible blow uh, to the sorts of internal, um, I don't want to say, uh, the word control came to my, my mind, but that's not what I meant. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the ways of internally um, persuading uh, people one way or another. Um, you know the, um, uh, the the flat Earth professor can get uh, can be um, uh, his views can be discussed in the uh, in, in the student newspaper, but you know the student newspaper doesn't exist anymore, so we don't have that uh, um, uh, th th that venue. Now, um, professors can be uh, and, and I, you know should be. I, I think uh, that there should be um, uh, provision for this in uh, our collective agreements. Um, a uh, an academic vice president who has concerns about the quality of a professor's research, about the quality of a professor's teacher, um, uh, teaching, uh, it, it should be uh, empowered to bring a panel of um, uh, professors uh, to investigate and, and to recommend. Uh, if um, the quality of a professor's uh, teaching, the quality of a professor's research has fallen below a certain standard, um, that professor can properly be dismissed, right? So um, if a professor is using class time um, to um, badger the students about some problem that, you know, that, that, that isn't in the, um, uh, the, the course description, um, that's a knock against the professor and it can be, uh, can be acted on. Uh, you know, um, uh, I don't think there's any um, uh, uh, reason, reason why not. Uh, why not? Um, it's just, it's the micromanaging, I guess, is what concerns me. Uh, rather than, um, you know, we have a, a problem with the professor's teaching, um, let's investigate it in a, in a, a, a rigorous, uh, a, a appropriate way. So, uh, no, uh, I don't know if we disagree, but um, I'm happy that professors have um, um, freedom to say what they want in the, uh, in the classroom. Now, the thing is, uh, we don't, I don't think we really have to worry much about this. By and large, uh, the professor is someone who's really, really interested in what it is that they're teaching. And that's not an accident either, because uh, professors as members of the department are creating their courses. Uh, and we have freedom with regard to, uh, to the syllabus uh, uh, of the course. Um, we are contractually obligated to teach the course um, as it's described in the calendar, but uh, we're free to 
um, propose amendments to that description or to introduce uh, um, uh, new courses. So uh, the um, uh, the professor who rambles on about nothing, or the professor who um, has um, you know uh, absolutely um, uh, discredited views, uh, is is a rarity. But uh, you know, and I really worry that if you take these rare instances so seriously that you're going to um, create policy and rules, that the policy and rules are going to be used badly. They're going to be used against uh, professors who have uh, controversial views rather than uh, obviously discredited views. Great, great. Thanks. The time we have remaining, I want to talk about a couple potential solutions. We've talked a lot about problems, and I always like to try to end on a, a little sure. bit of a positive note. So first, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Chicago principles, yeah. which have been mentioned in various sources, and yeah, we'll post a link to this in the show notes. But broadly speaking, the Chicago principles are a, <clears throat> a statement by the University of Chicago affirming their commitment to sort of robust a free and open debate. And many other universities have adopted this statement. I believe it's the case that several years ago, the province of Alberta mandated that all universities in that province must adopt some yeah. sort of uh, you know, either those principles or or something close to them. There's a website maintained by the, uh, the FIRE organization, FIRE, that lists, I think, over 100 universities that have adopted this. And this has now been going on for a few years. In your mind, I assume you're probably pretty uh, sympathetic to the idea of the Chicago principles. Have they been effective? Uh, no, uh, the, the, the legislative attempts to get universities to abide by the Chicago principles have not been effective. Um, there's no real enforcement mechanism, um, and I, I don't think we can trust the government on this anyway. So, you know, the, the, their agenda is not... Um, uh, you know, uh, robust intellectual debate, or so. Um, uh, so, so I, you know, I, uh, Ontario and Quebec are the other two provinces that have attempted uh, that, that. You know, where the um, uh, members of the government have seen the problem and uh, thought they might do something. Whether they're doing it because they think it will sell among their base, or whether they're actually committed to it, is another question. Uh, but I, 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 getting governments involved is um, not a, a terribly good idea. It's going to get the professors' backs up and uh, they're going to, uh, the administration is going to find ways to work around it and the rest. And so it hasn't been successful. Uh, certainly we saw in, um, uh, uh, at Mount, uh, at, sorry, at um, uh, University of Lethbridge with Francis Widowson's talk that was canceled by the, uh, the university's uh, president. Um, and that's Alberta, you know, and uh, that looks like a violation of the uh, uh, of, of the legislation. It looks like a violation of uh, what the um, uh, Chicago principles uh, in- endorse. And if they're part of the uh, University of Lethbridge, then uh, uh, you know, it's a violation of Lethbridge's uh, policy. But it didn't matter. And it's not going to matter. Cause, uh, uh, so um, I-, I-, I think that change has to come from within. It has to be led by the professors, maybe led by the students. No, it has to be led by the professors. The students can certainly be part of it. Uh, but um, uh, Chicago principles, yeah, um, uh, that's terrific. When a, um, a union and the university are engaged in collective bargaining and they want good language for academic freedom, Go to the Chicago Principles as an example. Um, there are other ones as well. Trent University had uh, uh, had something really good um, a couple decades ago as well, uh, maybe three decades ago. Um, so you know, uh, go to them and, and you know use the language, use those ideas. But I don't think um, you know uh, the, the government um, attempts are, are a good idea from the 
beginning, and I don't think they've worked in the three instances where, 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 where they've been applied. Are there any specific changes? You say change should be led from within. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Any specific changes that you think could be implemented that could improve things? Well, I, th- there are uh, changes. Uh, th- th- there are um, avenues of change. Now, I'm not optimistic about them being implemented. I, you know, I think we really have a problem here, because, especially with um, uh, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion um, requirements um, or uh, preferential hiring um, and requiring people to uh, uh, new people to new professors to the university to uh, swear allegiance to uh, EDI as part of the uh, the hiring process. This looks like it's going to be two or three generations because uh, you know the. Uh, the, the the long march through the institutions, uh, right, has uh, is uh, is succeeding, uh, but uh, we do want solutions. Uh, one thing um, I think is um, with regard to uh, I mean what we what we as uh, professors should try to do is instill in our students and in our other colleagues a love of academic engagement for its own sake, you know, a love of attempting to investigate the world, interpret poetry, whatever, is it, whatever it is we're doing for its own sake. Um, and if we can, you know, bring enough people um, uh, to, to value this, then they might press for institutional change in ways that um, uh, 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 favor academic values over, over other values. Uh, that's one. An- another is the concept of respect. Uh, and you, you may have noticed that uh, the-, the term respect gets used a lot now by um, university um, uh, administrators and, and, and university officials. It doesn't mean what it what we think it means. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. Now, um, for academics, what it is to respect someone is not to manipulate them. That is not to lie to them, not to uh, prevaricate, um, not to cheat, not to uh, not to deceive. So if you are treating someone with respect, respect for their intellectual and moral autonomy, um, you're going to be um, candid and straightforward with them. But the, the term respect now, as we find it in university documents, and this is the the sad part uh, means something like um, solicitude for feelings and identities. And these are diametrically opposed. On the first uh, meaning of respect, um, I'm going to tell you what I think of you. <laughs> On the second meaning of respect, I'm not going to tell you what I think of you if that might have, um, uh, uh, might offend you or, or upset you or whatever. And this new meaning of respect is the one embedded in current university documents. So one change has to be to notice this, to point it out, to say that this isn't um, a conception of respect appropriate for the academic mission. It's against academic values. Uh, and maybe, maybe that will, uh, will move people. Um, the third thing I think is about, the, um, about self-censorship, about uh, not speaking your mind. Um, we professors who uh, want an academic university have to make it clear to our students, have to ask our students sometimes not to lodge complaints, but rather to address the issue at hand, whatever it might be. Um, make um, the grounds of your complaint known to the professor or to the class rather than taking it uh, uh, further. So if we are committed to investigating things as they are, we're not going to, um, uh, we're not going to self-censor. 
because we think that when we have something to say that moves the discussion forward, it would be um, a corruption of our, uh, of our activity um, not to say it. Right. So those, I think, are three things that we can do, but they are three things just sort of at the at the level of individual professors and students trying to create an environment, trying to create an atmosphere uh, where uh, the academic mission can go forth. I mean, that's great personally. I mean, I think it matches up really well with sort of classical liberal worldview that I think of is that rather than relying on these big institutions to make the changes because that's so difficult, change your little behavior, your corner of the world and and hope that others will join you in that project. Mm -hmm. We are just about out of time, but we do a lot to make sure our guest has the last word. And so, Mark, the last question I want to pose for you here today is, I mean, you've spent a lot of time thinking, working and writing about this issue over your career. Are you optimistic or pessimistic if we're talking about the next 10 or 20 years of what the university will be like if we were to schedule a, a follow-up interview uh, for some time in, in the 2030s? Do you think you'd be excited by what the changes, what we'd seen, or would you be more dismayed? No, dismayed. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really quite pessimistic. Um, and, and people ask me, I don't want to say I'm pessimistic. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, Things are, might even get worse before they get better. Um, you know, I think that the, um, uh, the idea of an academic university has always been a minority view, even within universities. Um, always been a minority view, but it's, um, it, it's never faced the institutional repression that it's facing these days. Um, 30 years ago, when an administrator was about to violate someone's academic freedom or about to do something that uh, contravened academic um, uh, values, they'd say, um, I'm doing something that violates academic freedom, but the situation is such that it's called for and I can't, and I'm really sorry about this, but ha have to do it. Nowadays, they say, well, academic freedom doesn't cover that. Or, um, no, this is really what the university is about or, or something. So, um, you know, even the, uh, the, the, the rhetoric of academic freedom uh, doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't appeal to them, let alone uh, the reality. So that's one reason. Um, and then also just uh, contemporary hiring practices um, with uh, preferential uh, hiring and, and, uh, and, and restricted hiring. Um, this brings people in as members of uh, groups, uh, racial groups, uh, sex uh, sexual orientation groups, um, uh, whatever. Um, and this um, confirms in them a sort of identity. They become identity scholars rather than uh, scholars of their subject. Uh, and this is going to create, um, well, it's going to move us away from um, uh, the university as a place of investigation, more toward the university as a museum, where, you know, we have our uh, different um, um, exhibits, and, and we're not uh, uh, we're not to criticize them. We're just to appreciate and, and uh, uh, celebrate uh, uh, the um, uh, the uh, the different installations. So uh, that's the sort. Uh, rather than a gallery, uh, we're getting uh, you know, more like a museum. Uh, so, uh, and I think these things are um, um, you know are, are here for for a while, just because they are now being baked into uh, the organization of the institution, the organization of the uh, of the universities. So, what we have to do, I think, uh, the two things we have to do: one is to articulate the conception of an academic university, um, get it you know make it explicit, uh, so that. 
in the future, if things, uh, uh, if, if the possibility of change opens up, people don't have to, you know, rediscover stuff or uh, reinvent the wheel. Uh, they'll they'll have um, a philosophy of higher education, a philosophy of uh, the academic, uh, uh, the academic world, the academic. Uh, uh, mission, and the second thing we have to do is um, try in our own little corners of the university uh, to keep um, the values of the academic university alive, uh, and that's going to be hard to do because there's you know the pressures uh, from the outside, and um, you know uh, you can be uh, called up by uh, administrators um, and uh, you know disciplinary meetings and all the rest, um, but. In your classrooms, um, try as best you can to make them places of uh, freedom of expression. Uh, keep the um, um, keep the practices. So, so on the one hand, uh, we want to articulate the ideas, articulate the theories and the arguments. On the other hand, we want in as uh, as much as we can, though, understandably in a limited way, uh, to keep the practices alive. Mark Mercer, thanks for joining me here on the Curious Task. Well, thanks very much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Sabine Alchidak and Eric Sege. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it. And listeners like yourself, I'm Matt Bufton. Thanks again for joining us on The Curious Task.